0: Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen.
1: Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Allie Volpe, and
2: today I'm sitting in for Sean Illing. I'm a senior reporter here at Vox covering lifestyle and culture. I'm also a Virgo, an anxiously attached INFJ a Neogram type 9, a Slytherin, and my love language is acts of service. Based on these descriptors, you might deduce that I am judgmental but with good intentions, idealistic and principled, easygoing and accepting, cunning and determined, and thrilled when my partner picks up the slack around the house. I wouldn't say that's entirely inaccurate, but these labels don't tell the whole story of my personality either. In my reporting, I cover a lot of topics, but there's something I keep coming back to, these questions of who we are and why we do the things we do. Over the last few years, I've noticed a lot of people discussing various aspects of their personalities by using succinct identifiers, everything from their zodiac sign to attachment style. These terms are especially popular online, Myers-Briggs' personality types are often featured in dating app profiles. People love to share their BuzzFeed quiz results, like, what succession character are you? And there are so many TikToks about attachment style.
0: Your attachment style could determine the fate of your relationship. Here's a really easy way to understand why you have the attachment style you have. Yes, I'm going to blame your parents. Okay, disorganized
2: attachment. This one trips a lot of people up. The best way to describe this one is, come here these descriptors are a shorthand for those also in the know. So when I say I'm a Virgo, people with some basic knowledge of horoscopes have an understanding of me and what I'm about. But what are these bite-sized personality descriptors missing? And what does it mean for us to have this curiosity about our psyches in the first place? What's the story we're telling about ourselves? I'm Allie Volpe, and this is The Gray Area. Our guest is Mitch Green. He is a professor of philosophy at the University of Connecticut and the author of Know Thyself, The Value and Limits of Self-Knowledge. Mitch has been trying to know himself since high school when he dabbled in Zen Buddhism. Since then, he's studied the quest for self-knowledge from ancient Greece to today, and he's taught Know Thyself classes online and at the university where he works. We began our conversation by discussing what it means to be on a journey to self-knowledge.
3: doubtful that it's a journey that has a definite endpoint at which you can say, yes, I completely understand myself. Yes, I completely know what kind of person I am, what I'm like, how I tick, etc. I think this comes in degrees at most and I believe that, at least based on my experience as well as my understanding of the research that's connected with the topic, the journey is one that goes probably throughout our entire lives, at least if we're willing to pursue it, if we make an effort to achieve greater self-knowledge. So, that's certainly an important part of it. And one theme that I've taken away from my attempt to get a better understanding of the whole project of self-knowledge is that introspection is of value, but probably of limited value in that process of acquiring self-knowledge. Introspection has some has a role to play. But I believe that at least in Western society, we tend to overemphasize the role that introspection can play and suspect that there are probably other non-first-personal, let's call them extrospective ways of learning about ourselves. That's certainly a big, important part of my journey and something that I try to be consistent with in my attempts to get a better understanding of myself as well as to help my students do the same.
2: Yeah, you mentioned introspection. I can imagine that is sort of a motivator for why people want to learn about their personalities. But I'm wondering, like, what other factors inspire people to want to learn about their personalities, learn about themselves?
3: That's a good question. I guess I would suggest that one factor might be the fact that sometimes we're just puzzled about ourselves. Sometimes we're reacting in a certain way to a relationship or finding ourselves unable to get motivated for a project that we thought we'd care about or getting to a point of acquiring something, for example, a material possession that we thought was going to make us happy, but in fact it's not so not such a great source of happiness after all. The various aspects of our, of our lives in which things happen to us concerning our emotional reactions to things that are puzzling, that are hard for us to understand, that don't conform to our predictions or expectations about what's going to happen. And then that can sometimes be a prompt for people to say, well, why is that going on? Why is that happening to me? I thought that this new car or something would make me happy. And it made me happy for a little while, but not as long as I I had hoped it would. Why is that? And so sometimes we're prompted to, as it were, dig deeper into ourselves by puzzling aspects of our lives Other times, I think, when we have a personal crisis, the breakdown of a relationship, for example, or the failure of a job, especially we're fired or laid off or don't get the promotion that we wanted to and so forth, sometimes that can be a prompt for self-examination. Those also are puzzles, but they're puzzles that often involve our relationships with other people and other institutions. Those can be prompts for self-knowledge. So while I think there are plenty of people who value self-knowledge, self-understanding for its own sake, My suspicion, just based on anecdotal experience, is that for the most part, people are prompted to look for that by virtue of crises or surprising outcomes in their lives.
2: When I think about some of the personality assessments that people are taking in the effort of learning more about themselves, it, to me at least, doesn't really seem to address, like, the motivations for certain things or how to change problems that we might be facing? Like, is, is that fair to say?
3: hmm Yeah, I think it's fair to say. I mean, looking at those problems, trying to face them and understand them and perhaps change some of the etiology of your behavior is really hard work. And it involves, you know, accepting some painful truths about yourself in many cases. And so it's natural for our society to try to shy away from that difficult emotional and intellectual labor, but I think it's unavoidable types of labor if we're going to make genuine and lasting progress on ourselves, including a better understanding of ourselves. So I completely agree and think it's something that can be addressed, but it's not something that can be addressed with more personality tests. It's something that could be addressed with hard work that involves hearing honest, frank, unvarnished feedback from people that you trust and have a relatively unbiased attitude towards giving you information.
2: Right. Like- Especially right now, why is this such a trend? Like, why do people want to learn about their personalities in this form of assessments?
3: My speculation, I suppose, would be something like this, that perhaps the pandemic prompted lots of self-examination that people wanted to go through about whether or not the career that they might go back to or might be able to go back to in person in an office somewhere after the pandemic broke was one that they really wanted to pursue. There's a sense in which, you know, we often say before any pandemic broke that I wish I could stop the world and get off for a little while and you know let all the intensity and stress and so forth pass me by for a little while. Sometimes you do that with vacations and things of the sort, but even those were not difficult during the pandemic. The pandemic was in some ways a forced vacation for many people, whether they wanted it or not. And that's not to say that it was a good thing, but it was, I think, part of what came with the territory. And that, I believe, prompted many people to engage in some self-examination. So I think that's part of it. And it might be that in a more general way, our culture is one that is moving a bit more towards an evaluation of self-knowledge in a way connected with the fact that people, generally speaking, younger than myself, tend more and more often to say what they want are more valuable experiences rather than more material things. And that, I think, is all to the good, but those valuable experiences, I think, for many of us are going to be only valuable or perhaps more valuable If we're able to appreciate why it is we care about them, what's interesting or or satisfying about them, and then also make decisions about what we want to do with our time. So as our society becomes one in which people, generally speaking, of course, there are lots of exceptions, but generally speaking, people have a lot of opportunities for leisure time. We have to make choices about how we're going to spend it. And there is an overwhelming array of choices there. And it seems to me trying to get a better understanding of ourselves is... Part of making progress on negotiating those choices, but also the ever present importance of, you know, of our relationships with others. We've got to think about what makes us happy, what does not, what we find satisfying, what we don't. And often, progress in that is not just a matter of what at the moment I find myself liking or disliking, but rather, in a long term way, what I'm going to find satisfying, rewarding. And that, generally speaking, is only going to happen if we've got a reasonably deep insight into ourselves.
2: Is it possible then to be a human these days who has zero interest or curiosity about their personalities?
3: I guess I think that there are, in my experience I have seen, people who seem to have a pretty good grasp, if only at the intuitive, maybe even non- or semi-conscious level, of what they want and what they don't want. So someone who knows what they care about, what they don't care about, and just proceeds accordingly, can... I suppose, do pretty well for themselves as long as their aspirations are fairly limited. What that kind of person is going to be less able to do is, if they ever get to a point at which they are unhappy with the situation, having the skills to go about reassessing some of the things they care about, why they like the things they do, why they don't like the things they don't like, et cetera, is going to be very difficult for them. So, in the book, Know Thyself, that I published about five years ago, I raised the question, No, even though Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, is that really true? Mm -hmm. So I've always liked to prompt my students or challenge my students with the question, well, if you've heard the slogan, the unexamined life is not worth living. But are we sure that's really right? What if somebody doesn't engage in self-examination, but they still do something that's very worthwhile, very valuable to others and so forth? They seem happy. What's wrong with that? To which I'd say, it's not clear there is anything very wrong with that. However, As a matter, at least, of knowing how to move forward when we encounter problems, crises, difficulties, and so forth, having a modicum of self-knowledge is very, very valuable, as opposed to just resting on luck, which is what people often do. So I guess I'd say, I don't think it's impossible to live a happy and satisfying life if you don't engage in any pursuit towards self-knowledge or self-understanding. I don't think it's impossible to live a satisfying life if you don't engage in those things. But I believe that it's risky. You put yourself up for the possibility of difficulties later on because circumstances so often change in our lives that what worked 10 years ago might not work now. And getting something to work now might involve, often will involve, a reassessment of our priorities, and our values, our impulses, and so forth. And that's where the value of self-knowledge comes in. So I guess I'd say you can get lucky <laughs> and live a life that involves little or no self-examination but most of us probably would rather proceed in a way that's more as it were robust against the 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 t- sorts of challenges and crises that are likely to affect any life. And so I'd say engaging in some self-examination is something like an insurance policy against those difficulties that are very likely to arise for most of us.
2: yeah, like I, I kind of want to pull back a little bit and get a better understanding or definition of what self-knowledge and self-examination actually means.
3: Sure. Well, the way I think of them, in recent epistemology, epistemology, that's a a branch of philosophy, 50 years ago would have been generally defined as the study of knowledge. Nowadays, epistemologists tend to want to widen that discussion, so it includes knowledge but also understanding. And think of knowledge as, the paradigm case of knowledge is knowing a fact. So I know that Paris is the capital of France, I know, take myself to know that The Earth's climate is changing in ways that are going to bring potential dangers to future generations and so forth. Those are particular propositions that will have implications, but they can be grasped in a relatively isolated way. Whereas understanding tends to be more holistic and involves having a grasp of how different aspects of a complex phenomenon fit together. So understanding meteorology is something that I don't, <laughs> but if I were to understand meteorology as opposed to no particular facts about weather situations, I would have a grasp of, I could, and I could also explain, how it is that what happens in one part of the atmosphere is going to have an implication of what happens elsewhere, et cetera. So too applied to the self, self-knowledge is most naturally thought of as my knowing a certain fact about myself. That, for example, I tend to get impatient in certain circumstances, and I tend to be so to procrastinate about certain other things, etc. Whereas self-understanding is going to similarly be more holistic, and so I'll understand whole patterns of my behavior. And so I can begin to get a grasp of how it is that by, when one thing happens, that's part of a, and as it were, suite, of a whole broad set of phenomena that tend to result in a certain kind of outcome. So self-understanding is more holistic, whereas self-knowledge tends to be more piecemeal. And if I were to rephrase the ancient Socratic dictum, it might be understand thyself as supposed to know thyself. Because understanding thyself, as it were, seems to me to be one that by virtue of being more holistic will allow us to get a better sort of bird's eye view of ourselves, having an appreciation for how the different components of myself hang together. And I should just emphasize that those components are often ones that manifest themselves in social situations. So friendship, a life partnership, an intimate relationship, etc., are ones that are going to be important, as it were, areas in which our personalities manifest themselves. And understanding how I go through a relationship is one that will be crucial for my living a happy life. So that, for example, a person who has difficulty holding onto friendships for a long time might find, if they sit back from a series of difficult friendships, friendships that have failed, might find that they can begin to discern a pattern. When they do so, they achieve something closer to self-understanding as opposed to
2: self-knowledge. Coming up after the break, we go back to ancient Greece to understand how Socrates established the foundation for modern self-discovery.
0: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money, how to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might wanna check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushion footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
2: So you mentioned uh, Socrates. Let's go back to ancient Greece. Like, what is his role in all of this? How did this begin?
3: I guess I'd start out with the thought that it begins with Socrates being quite literally on trial for an accusation that was leveled against him, that he was accused by his fellow Athenians of corrupting the youth of Athens, because he had been going around ancient Athens asking people questions about the nature of justice or virtue or love or knowledge, and he'd often ask these questions to people who were allegedly knowledgeable people, allegedly wise people, who knew the answers to the hard questions. But so often, Socrates' questions would show that these people who presented themselves as being wise or knowledgeable were not as wise or knowledgeable as they seemed to be. And so he succeeded in embarrassing a lot of people in the course of his conversations with them. And then over time, he developed a sort of entourage of young aristocratic Athenian men who followed him around because they enjoyed these conversations. That was the basis. I'm not saying that the accusation was justified, but that was the basis of the accusation that his fellow Athenians launched against him that he was corrupting the youth. So he's on trial in front of a jury of 501 fellow Athenians, and he ends up getting convicted, found guilty of corrupting the youth. And in the course of his response to that conviction and the sentence, which will be a sentence of death, He says the unexamined life is not worth living, and as I read him, as part of the general attempt on his part to try to get his fellow Athenians to be more self-reflective, to achieve greater self-knowledge. At least according to his own profession, Socrates is not at all bothered by the death penalty. He's 70 years old at this time, he doesn't feel terribly worried about it, but he takes himself to have the role of being sort of a gadfly that's going to bother his fellow Athenians, annoy them to a level of achieving some kind of self-knowledge. And I think the historical record, given the long shadow that Socrates has cast over Western and other societies, I guess I'd say the answer is enterprise of trying to be a gadfly to bother people to be more self-reflective probably succeeded (laughs) in that people have been reading him and learning about his thoughts for over two millennia and continue to do so to this day. And so I guess... What prompts the the injunction to know thyself from Socrates is even though he's being put to death, he still sees his role as one to provoke and motivate his fellow Athenians to be more self-aware and to think more about the important questions that that need to be answered to live a flourishing life. And those promptings from Socrates are ones that are in many ways still with us today.
2: Yeah, like what does it mean that These promptings have such a lasting effect that they're still with us today. What significance does that hold?
3: Well, I guess it holds at least this much significance that it's part of our culture that we are at least open to the idea that self knowledge is something that's worth achieving. And maybe if Sparta had been the dominant society in ancient Greece and had a cultural legacy that's as powerful as. Athens' cultural legacy, maybe contemporary Western culture at least, would place much less value on self-knowledge because the Spartan society was very different from the Athenian. That's just a pure speculation on my part. But you can imagine how different historical contingencies could have resulted in different cultural milieus such as we have now. But Socrates raising that injunction to know thyself is one where, even though I would say it's actually a bit overstated, it's overdramatic, it's certainly memorable, and I've seen it on people's tattoos and coffee mugs and t shirts and so forth. It's part of pop culture, pretty much. And that's valuable insofar as, generally speaking, getting a handle on yourself, achieving what I would prefer to call self understanding rather than self knowledge is, as I was suggesting before, likely to enable you to live a happier life. And I think that not just the injunction to know oneself or understanding oneself, but also the value that comes with doing so is something that is, in a way, part of our cultural memory, kind of our cultural heritage. And we're often inclined to think, we're often told that people behave foolishly when they don't know what they want, don't know what they value, don't know what they need, etc. And that would be an example of how absence of self-knowledge is going to lead us astray and perhaps cause us harm. So it's one of our cultural assumptions still today that having some kind of self-knowledge or self-understanding is probably necessary if you're going to achieve happiness. I'm not sure that that assumption is strictly speaking true, but it's close enough to being true. It's a good enough approximation for many people that it still has some weight. And that's a good thing. I don't have any problem attracting students to take my Know Thyself course when I offer it or getting people to enroll in the online courses that I've offered on this topic as well. And it seems to me that's a That's a good thing. People are curious and want to achieve such self-knowledge or self-understanding as they can acquire. I would, you know, support that and and, and think that it's a good thing. But I'd also say that in contemporary society, we tend to underestimate the amount of work that's required to achieve self-knowledge or self-understanding that's valuable and that is lasting.
2: Yeah. Why do we underestimate it? Do we just simply think that it is as easy as taking, you know, the Myers Briggs assessment to find all the answers, and therefore find happiness.
3: Yeah, that's right. It's an easy fix. It's a quick fix. It's not so much that people are inherently lazy. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. But it's that, generally speaking, we'd like to get a more efficient route to the goal that we want to attain than the more expensive, difficult, circuitous route. So there's nothing ridiculous about the desire to have a relatively quick fix. And if the Myers-Briggs something of the sort could give that to us, that would be nice. The fact is, for better or worse, that achieving self-knowledge is generally a fairly difficult thing and requires not just hours or days of scrutiny, but maybe weeks, months, perhaps even years of doing so. It's a probably a lifelong process in many ways. And that's not, I guess, I don't want to accuse contemporary society of being superficial. I want to just point out that it's not, it's just Reasonable in general to try to achieve a goal in a more efficient and direct and straightforward way than otherwise, and we—that's that's why we're tempted by the quick way. But it seems to me, as a matter of fact, it's not a very successful way. Like not a way it's very likely to achieve success if we take the personality assessment approach to self-understanding. I think one of the problems is that, in addition to the difficulties that have been brought up, so for example, there's an article from Vox from I think twenty. 15 about the Myers-Briggs assessment, in which Adam Grant is discussing how it is based on pretty much no science at all, even if it were a pretty good predictor of people's behavior. So even if it were the case that if on Tuesday I take the Myers-Briggs, that gives me predictions as to how I'm going to behave on Thursday or next week or next month, that would not be a bad thing. But it's still going to explain why I have the personality characteristics that I do. And it tends to be that understanding why I have the personality characteristics that I do, understanding those is the hard work that's required for making forward progress on ourselves if that's what we want to do. So if you were to take a certain personality test and find that you're happy with the assessment that you got, maybe you don't feel any need to make any change. But most of us probably find ourselves where we land on one of those assessments in ways that we'd like to improve upon in some way or another. And then the personality assessment gives you very little direction as to how to make those changes. And that's where the hard work really has to come.
2: So before we had all of these assessments and online quizzes, like how did people come to know themselves or categorize themselves in societies throughout history?
3: Now, one thing I'd want to say is that whether it's a personality assessment or something else, there is a certain amount of value in having a narrative about yourself that can give you some guidance. So Robin Dawes, a psychologist, a statistician from Carnegie Mellon, wrote a book called House of Cards in which he argued that what matters is that somebody tells you a story about yourself and you incorporate it that makes sense of your behavior, consistent with your behavior, whether it's about the early childhood effects on your behavior resulting from interactions with your parents or whether it's because of witchcraft that might be being inflicted upon you, Dawes argues, it doesn't matter all that much for many purposes. What matters is that you have to have a story. And so if Dawes is right, one thing I would say is that When we think about ancient societies in which people made predictions about what is going to happen or suggestions about what people should do based on dreams or how the entrails of a slaughtered animal ended up at the bottom of the bowl and so forth, that's not completely ridiculous insofar as it gives people some kind of direction as to what to do. So too, I would say astrology doesn't have scientific credentials, but if somebody reading the astrological forecast finds that it gives them some emotional satisfaction and some way of putting together the disparate pieces of their lives, then I would not accuse them of being irrational or silly. I would say that might work for them. That might be something that's good for them, in which case we'd have some value. So part of the background here is that I think for many societies, maybe pretty much all societies, having some kind of narrative about what makes our life go the way that it does, whether it's the gods, whether it's unconscious psychosexual desires, the sort that traditional psychoanalytic tradition posited or whether it's something else, in some ways doesn't matter very much. What matters is that you've got a story, and so that part of social psychology that focuses on the importance of narrative has got something to say about these ideas. That's one point. Another point would be that people might not have referred to or approached self-knowledge as something with that terminology or with that kind of conceptual structure but might have achieved it all the same without knowing that they were doing so. So just as I might become better at horseback riding or running without being self-conscious about the process, just getting better at it over time, can easily imagine people in various societies getting a better handle on themselves, getting a better understanding of themselves without being self-conscious in the process of doing so. So that's certainly a possibility that would be because it's something people might not notice could, as it were, fly under the radar of the historical record. So for all we know, a whole lot of what happened in ancient Persia or classical India was actually about the greater achievement of self-knowledge, but might not have been described that way. So I think that if we look at the historical record, we'd want to be careful to look out for things that would be various kinds of advances in progresses towards greater self-knowledge without being characterized as such. So that's another point I'd want to make. And then I guess the third point would be, when we tell stories about other people, characters, individuals, whether they're historical stories or myths, fables, etc often they convey or purport to convey a certain kind of understanding. And we can often achieve a better grasp of ourselves by taking those stories, appreciating the suggestion that they make, the wisdom that they try to provide, and incorporating them in an appropriate way. So, Zen koans, some of which I (laughs) begin to understand a little bit now at this time in my life, Aesop's fables and various stories of heroes and so forth throughout history in Western as well as non-Western societies convey a kind of wisdom that people can often use in the process of achieving self-knowledge, even if they're not thinking of themselves as doing that. So, the third point As well as the second point are both ways of saying, I think self-knowledge has been a project for perhaps about as long as human beings have been trying to improve their lives. But it's not always been thought of in those terms. It might have been only ancient Greek philosophers like Socrates who brought self-conscious attention to the project. But it might have been, and I suspect it has been, something that we've been working on for many thousands of years, perhaps many more thousands of years, in before classical Greek and similar civilizations.
2: Now that we understand the benefits of having a personal narrative about ourselves, what happens if we buy into that narrative too much? That's coming up after the break.
0: Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. Netsuite.com slash gray area.
1: Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: I'm wondering, like, how we square our narrative with the idea of personal growth, where, like, For instance, I'm a Virgo, and that means I'm very organized, I'm critical, all of those different categories. Like, what if I buy into that to an extreme level? How can I grow if I think that that so encapsulates who I am?
3: Right. I think that these types of uh, self-narratives can be a double-edged sword. While they can, on the one hand, help you put together disparate aspects of your existence, of the way you live your life, and add some kind of coherence to that. There's a school of philosophy known as existentialism. Existentialists were notorious or famous for a number of different doctrines, but one thing that existentialists had to say that has always stuck with me is the concept of bad faith. And bad faith is the idea, roughly speaking, that we tell ourselves stories that are sometimes accurate, but sometimes can be used as sort of a, a way of justifying our impulses, even if those impulses are not the most laudable or the ones that we find most valuable. So I exercise bad faith if I say, I can't do this anymore when I'm really just saying I decide not to do this anymore, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a project, whether it's a workout, if I say I'm too tired for this. Well, sometimes I'm exercising bad faith. So too, it seems to me, if we get too bound up in our astrological or Enneagram or other types of ways of defining ourselves, the worry is that I could say something like, well, I'm a Virgo, that's why I did so-and-so, as if that happened to me as opposed to something that resulted in part from our agency. So it's one thing to say I had, you know, for people that I know that suffer from severe depression, for example, or have anxiety disorders, these are things that really do happen to them, and they have very limited control. But when I say things like I'm controlling or I have a certain kind of, you know, attachment style, for example, my experience is that that's partly a matter of, as it were, finding what's there, and partly a matter of acquiescing in a label, buying into a label and saying, that's going to be how I'm going to behave going forward. And that is that little move right there that always strikes me because it seems to me there is an opportunity for, at that point, deciding to not be that way or to be that way a little bit less that people often don't give themselves a chance to contemplate and act on if they choose that that's worth doing. So the idea is this, Philosophers like to distinguish between aspects of the world that are made and aspects of the world that are found. We find that gold has a certain atomic structure. We make buildings. Those are pretty clear cases. What about ourselves? Part of what's so challenging about the process of achieving self-knowledge and self-understanding is that our own selves are complex mixtures Of what we make and what we find and we often start out with things about ourselves that we find and then effortlessly perhaps unconsciously slip over into thinking that the rest of ourselves are things that we find as well they're there they're objective they're just who we are and in so doing we act i believe sometimes with a certain amount of bad faith because it's not always completely honest So what I find striking about things like astrological signs and so forth is that sometimes people use them as justifications for acting a certain way, but they are still acting that way as opposed to finding themselves. And that's an area where I think many of us could probably achieve a certain amount of growth if we were to acknowledge the fact that this aspect of myself is as much made as found. And the part that's made, why can't I try to change course here a little bit.
2: Mm. Right, because it does seem pretty limiting to be like, well, this is just how I am, destination found, there's no changing it.
3: Mm -hmm. I find that very pervasive in contemporary society, that people, once they've found themselves on a map, on some diagram or grid in the personality assessment world and so forth, often say, well, that's me, that's who I am, and uh, I'll proceed accordingly. And that's not completely inaccurate. There might be some truth in that, but it tends to serve as kind of a crutch, tends to serve as a justification for, and I'm not going to try to make any changes here. And that's what I find both interesting and with my friends, people I know and so forth, if I sometimes can ever so politely suggest that there's actually an opening at that point for making some changes that, you know, sometimes an opportunity I'll try to take if I feel I can do so appropriately to help people that I care about move forward. And of course, I would hope other people would do the same with me. Sometimes I'm sure I'll say things like, well, that's just how I am. And it would be appropriate for someone to say, in some cases, is that how you are or is that how you choose to be? And that's often a fair question, even if it's not one that's always easy to hear.
2: (laughs) Yeah, what if something we learn from that objective third-party outsider is detrimental to our self-esteem and makes us really question who we thought we were?
3: That's right. That's right. It can hurt. It can be really uncomfortable to hear a frank assessment. So, for example, at the end of every semester of my teaching, I get course evaluations that are submitted by students anonymously and generally speaking, find that they're enjoyable and useful to listen to, but sometimes there's some sting. <laughs> sometimes there are some things in the course evaluations that I feel the brunt of, and I try to take the measure of those comments and take them forward and use them for future versions of a course that I'm teaching so I can do better. Likewise, many of us have opportunities to learn from colleagues, supervisors, etc., and with the right frame of mind taking those comments into account... Can be very helpful. My own tendency in the past has generally been to be defensive and to dismiss criticism of myself. And I try to get better at that over time. And I think it's natural because we all try to preserve our self esteem. Social psychologists sometimes talk about our internal spin doctor. So it's natural to be defensive, but it's really worthwhile to try to let this defense mechanism run its course and then still listen after a while and try to take those things into account. Because as you say, it's not easy, but really valuable to try to listen to people when they're just giving you their assessment, if, at least if they're a relatively unbiased person. If they don't have a vested interest in getting you to change in a certain way, that assessment can be revelatory, even if it's uncomfortable.
2: I like that term you used, spin doctor. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what that is and why is it bad, why is it good?
3: Sure. Tim Wilson in his book, Strangers to Ourselves, very good book from about 20 years ago talks about the psychological immune system and that concept is on analogy with the physiological immune system the physiological immune system its job is to protect us against invasions of potential disease germs and so forth and those of us who have well-working well-functioning immune systems should be very grateful for them Wilson talks about the psychological immune system, in which he says, generally speaking, our tendency when criticized or when we're confronted with some other kind of information that tends to challenge our self-conception, especially if it's a challenge that makes us have to lower our estimation of ourselves. For example, I thought I was really good at doing this kind of task, whether it was solving mathematical problems or solving puzzles or something else. When we get information that's contradictory to that, our initial reaction is to protect ourselves against that threat by, for example, devaluing the challenge, saying, oh, well, it was a bad test, or it was an unfair math problem or something of the sort. It was a puzzle that was rigged or something. We tend to do that, and it's a natural response. So the psychological immune system is valuable because each of us wants to have a certain amount of self-esteem. Each of us wants to be able to think of ourselves as being good and valuable and worthy and so forth. And so things that criticize or challenge that self-esteem tend to be ones that we want to attack and reject and disvalue, maybe even strangle. But nevertheless, some types of criticism are ones that probably should get through our defense mechanisms and probably should be ones that we listen to, and take into account. And so the spin doctor is a sort of pop version way of saying we spin information in such ways to make it look better for our own self-esteem. That test I did bad on, oh, well, it wasn't fair. Or I didn't get enough sleep. Or I was distracted. Or whatever. And that tends to play to our own desire to preserve our self-esteem. But sometimes when the dust settles, it's better to go back to that initial reaction and say, well, was that really right? Maybe I just didn't do well on the test, and maybe that's because I didn't study hard enough. Or maybe I, the reason why that relationship failed is not because the person was intimidated by me, but rather because I just wasn't being a very nice person or <laughs> something of the sort. So Wilson's idea is it's okay to have a psychological immune system. It's okay to have a spin doctor. But one needs to keep it in check, because otherwise we'll never be able to hear the criticism or the otherwise challenging information that the world gives us in such a way as to have a chance of improving ourselves.
2: And I think that runs counter to some of the results we get from these personality assessments where they're not often super critical. It might frame someone as you're very hard-headed or self-determined and kind of paints it in this light that is not so critical of somebody and maybe almost frames it as a a positive thing, some of their quote-unquote flaws.
3: Mm -hmm. I take it your point is some of these assessments could be a little bit more direct and perhaps a little bit more revelatory of the sorts of problems that others see and we should maybe be more open to hearing real criticism as opposed to sugarcoating everything that we hear. And I would endorse that, although that might need to change from one sort of organization to another, one kind of person to another, because some people might take criticism more effectively, more resourcefully than others do. So there might be a certain amount of nuance that's required to understand who the audience is. But it seems to me our society, the the same society that says all kids on all soccer or baseball teams should get a trophy, (laughs) it's the same kind of society that says, and criticism should always be covered in a whole lot of sugar coating. Otherwise, it would be too hard for the recipient. And I would say, maybe that might be the best we could do, but it might be that some people can do better and can take more direct criticism and and take it home and think about it, recover from the initial shock and move forward. That might be a way to, that our society could contemplate a new way of, of interacting with each other.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering what it says about our society when we have this outsized curiosity about ourselves, when we just want to mine our minds. Why? Why? What does it say about us?
3: <laughs> One thing that distinguishes our species from many others, certainly not all, but many, is that we just are curious. Part of what makes us tick is that we, generally speaking, want to know more about the world, including ourselves, because of course we're here in the world. And so general curiosity is certainly part of it. I suspect also our sort of cultural mythology, according to which, if I can achieve self-knowledge, I will thereby achieve happiness, is something that many of us accept, if only at the unconscious level. I'm not sure that's true. It seems to me a person could achieve a great deal of self-knowledge or self-understanding and still be unhappy if they don't act on either because they choose not to or they don't have the resources to act on the things that they've learned about themselves. So I'm actually skeptical of the idea that if I were to achieve full self-knowledge or self-understanding, or substantial self-knowledge or self-understanding, I would thereby also achieve some kind of happiness. I tend to doubt that. I think more components have to be in place. But I do think that it's probably a cultural expectation, at least in Western societies, that self-knowledge, self-understanding, would provide a deep kind of satisfaction, a deep kind of happiness. Whether it's true or not, if people accept it, that would still help explain why people seek that, why people attempt to achieve that. And if we're a society that's moving at least a bit away from materialism as a way of achieving happiness, but appreciation of experiences and relationships and so forth, that strikes me as all to the good. This is only because I suspect that probably is a more reasonable, reliable route to achieving happy lives, if we can do so in a way that stands on a foundation of a decent amount of self-understanding. It's not a guarantee of of happiness, but it's a crucial step for many of us. And so I would say that tendency that many of us have to try to get a better insight into ourselves is a laudable thing. It's a worthwhile thing. It's a valuable thing. It's no guarantee of happiness, but it's an important step.
2: Is it a uniquely American thing or a Western thing to have this introspection in the quest of happiness?
3: It seems to me, for example, that the Confucian tradition has important elements of self understanding. And so, of the non Western traditions I know about, I see a lot of cultural emphasis on achieving self knowledge, self understanding, even if they're not always put in those terms. So, I don't know that it's a uniquely American thing, but I guess I'd say because our society is so wealthy compared to so many others, or so we just have luxuries that many other societies in the world just can barely even dream of at this point, we have the resources for pursuit of self-knowledge in the way that many other people on the globe don't. But I'd also say many other societies have an emphasis on self-knowledge that flies under the radar because it's, it's not always put in those terms.
2: Yeah, and you bring up a good point about the resources. This has sort of blossomed into a very lucrative industry to mm-hmm. sell some of these assessments to companies in order to have their employees take them and figure out how they work best together on teams. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering how you think about capitalism in, in this quest to know yourself.
3: Well, it certainly is what drives the Myers-Briggs industry is the fact that there's companies rely upon it for to make hybrid decisions and so forth. And you've got a powerful company that sells the test and so forth. And so there's a lot of capitalist sort of interests at play here that do a lot of work. So that's part of the story for sure. And employers want to have a relatively cut and dried way of assessing somebody to see how good an employee they would be for better, for worse. That's nevertheless what they use. I just am not sure that simple solutions are ones that are always going to lead us, or even often, more often than not, will lead us to successful results. So I guess I'd say the American emphasis on efficiency and getting the job done quickly and effectively and so forth is part of what drives us to emphasize these personality assessments. I, however, tend to think that we probably put more faith in them than the science really justifies. So it's part of our culture, I think, to want to have a quick fix. And the result is probably mixed it best, as as, uh, Adam Grant points out.
2: Right. It goes back to that point about having too rigid of an idea of who we are sort of limits us or we use it as a justification for certain behaviors, whether they're helpful or not.
3: That's right. Absolutely. Again, if I describe my personality as something that's just fixed, this is just who I am, then there's part of it that's probably, at least may well be objectively correct, But there's part of it that's a choice that I make. And if I can hide my choice under the guise of this is just something that I find as opposed to something that I make, this is just something that happens to me, then that allows me to relinquish some responsibility for how I live my life, for how my life goes. And I see that happening very commonly with people that I interact with. Very often I find people that I interact with saying, here's who I am. Here's what my personality is like. And it's a complex, confusing mixture of objective fact and decisions. And I think if we were to acknowledge the fact that the decision-making has a role in determining the sort of people that we are, probably would take more responsibility in making ourselves the sort of people we aspire to be, as opposed to that bad faith way out that allows us to say, that's me, that's who I am, deal with it, (laughs) take it or leave it, which is something that I find very common.
2: I guess with all of that being said, the big question is, can we ever really know ourselves?
3: I would give an answer to that as a resounding yes. We can know ourselves, but you had the word really there, mm-hmm. <laughs> and philosophers of language like myself tend to like to reflect on what words, words like really are doing. If by really you mean have a full and complete insight into myself, I know everything about myself there is to know, I guess I tend to think that's probably an ideal that's worth striving for, but we might never achieve it. Individuals might never achieve it. On the other hand, if real means really know ourselves in the sense of having self-knowledge and self-understanding that's substantial enough to give us what we need to live satisfying, enjoyable, fulfilling lives that are still going to have problems still going to have sad areas and disappointments and so forth, that I would say, oh, if that's what you mean by really, I'd say yes. Self-knowledge in that substantial sense, not necessarily complete and perfect, but substantial sense, I would say that is attainable, but generally speaking, and for most of us, it's not easy. It's hard work. It takes painstaking effort and willingness to listen to sometimes emotionally difficult criticism and take the measure of the world and not always spin the information in such a way as to protect our self-esteem and so forth. So if really means substantial, I'd say yes, but you got to put in the work.
2: I never thought so seriously about the word really before.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's what we do. That's what philosophy of language do for a living. You'd be amazed, for example, at how much has been written on the word the, T-H-E, the most common word in the English language, but there are whole bookshelves of books that are on the topic. So you can say that I'm walking out at this point, but that's okay. I'll take the criticism.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Mitch, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.
2: Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. Let us know what you think of this episode. You can drop us a line at thegrayarea at box.com. If you appreciated this episode, share the link with your friends on all the socials. You can find me, Ali Volpe, on Twitter and yes, even threads at Ali Volpe. There's two E's in Ali. Sean Elling will be back with a new episode next Monday.